I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Clint, and thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? We are doing a compilation of the greatest hits, if you will, of the past. And we thought, hey, why not give you a taste of the best interviews you may have missed, the best survival stories and tips you may not have paid attention to last time. So hold on and get ready for Can You Survive This Podcast's Greatest Hits. Enjoy. Kurt Bush, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that introduction. Um, yeah, I've checked a lot of boxes off, you know, in the NASCAR <laughs> world, but I'm ready to check off these boxes here too. When was the last time you got a ticket? I got a ticket uh, this June and it was in North Carolina. I'm on a rally with a bunch of buddies and I was running in the back. You know, I was just chilling back there yeah. and the cop pulls us all over and we're doing 82 and a 70. Oh. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like, this, this is going to be fine. You, you didn't see us three miles back, you know, when we were really gassing it up triple digits. And he goes and grabs everybody's license and then comes back to the back car, which is me. And he hands me my license and he says, hey, I need you to go up the road. Uh, I got too many people here on the side of the road. This is kind of a danger situation for all these people. Uh, I need you to go up ahead. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I'm thinking I'm getting out of it. So I go up to the, to where he told me to go. It's the next gas station up. And there's another cop that's about a mile before that gas station and the red and blue blip. And now they're behind me. And I'm like, man, I was just told to go to the gas station up ahead. So I pull in, they get out, I get out and the junior police officer in the passenger seat wants a picture <laughs> because it's North Carolina NASCAR guy and they wanted a picture. Yeah. Right. So I take the picture. Everything's cool. And I still like, haven't gotten my ticket yet. And, and hours later, everybody trickles in to this gas station. Like now, now I've had like seven bags of Fritos, seven monsters, like what's going on. And he hands out a ticket to everybody on the rally. Everybody got a ticket. And I'm like, wait a minute. I took a picture with these guys three hours ago. What's what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I was mad. And my buddy's like, just grabbed me by the back of my collar. Just get in the car. Let's go. Yeah. And now I got to send it to lawyers and they, they handled it. It was, you know, it was $300 ticket. Somebody's got to show up in court, <laughs> but I'm like, wait a minute. I had to take a picture. I thought we we're out of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 That so it goes, fair both, to me. it goes both ways. It can go worse yeah. or it can get better. It just depends. Yeah. Well, there you go for all you law enforcement listening. Come on, come on. It's just, be real. it's just be real. Just be real. Picture equals zero tickets. Come on. Um, all right. So uh, we roll into, I think, the final one here. 
Kurt or Kyle? <laughs> you put your money on yourself. Sounds like we're done here. You know, you're talking to the, to the faster <laughs> one, the better one and the more handsome one. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I love the, the rivalry that we've always yeah. had. Uh, a lot of people don't know seven years younger than I am. And so we didn't race against each other at all as kids. You know, I was over here, he's over there. And by the time he got to cup, I had already mastered it. And so it took him three or four years to kind of catch up at the cup level. Yeah. And then when he did, boom, it was on. Like, <laughs> like we were, we were like at each other for a while. So it's been good over the years. You know, we've, we've kind of had all the ebbs and flows of who's, who's going to be bigger, who's going to get more stats, who got us here, uh, who had what imagery issue problems, you know, like we've gone through it all together. And yeah, right now, like we both throw an arm around each other and go, dude, we've, we've done it all. Now we're going to turn it into a, a hypothetical crisis scenario for you. So are you ready to uh, see if you can survive this podcast? Ready as I'll ever be. All right. <laughs> well, we've got a, uh, you know, a lot of these scenarios will kind of sound and start the same, but uh, Jeff is good. Jeff, the, one of the producers is good at mixing it up. So don't think for a second that you're, you're about to listen or hear the same scenario. So here we go. As you round a corner... Okay, you run straight into one of these bad guys, and now he's pointing a gun at your chest. Okay, so do you A, kick him in the nuts, or B, you want to basically trap, pivot, and strip the gun from him? Well, I don't have the skill to trap and pivot the gun. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, for me, all, all I'm thinking right now is I just want that away from from my chest right as best as i can possibly get it yeah so yeah. i don't i know that's not one of the options it kind of is it kind of because you're trapped if you're if you're going to grab the gun in any way that's yeah. really trapping the gun yeah right i, yeah. I just want to get him like like if i can get that weapon away like i can't take a chest a, a shot to the chest but i can you know it's not going to kill me if he hits me in the arm right as we've seen from things that are going on right now in the media so yeah. i just want to you know, as long as I can get that gun away from my center mass or from my head or anything like that, that's what I do. I think we can kick him because all this, you know, they might pull the trigger if I kick him in the nuts. I might go like that. You know, that's right. That's so, right. Um, yeah, I think you process of elimination, you know, B is right. And you pivot and trap, you know, trapping the gun just means, OK, I just got to get my hands on it. Uh, number two, the pivot is what gets your body out of the way. So it's not pointed at you any longer. You can also drive it to the sky or drive it to the ground. Um, you know, in these situations, there's no right or wrong. It's just come out alive is the goal. As you round the corner, one of the assailants is pointing a gun at your chest. Okay. Do you A, kick him in the nuts? Or B, basically trap the weapon. Okay. Pivot, trap, and grab it. We're obviously within arm's reach. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. never, never be in front of the little hole. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, B, you're going to kind of pivot your body out of the way of the barrel and trap the weapon with your hands the best you can. With the gun trapped, a struggle ensues. So, do you, A, yank forward to strip the gun away, 
or B, control it and drive the barrel towards the enemy's chest. Uh, can I uh, back up for one second? Sure. The last second when 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 Clint said, "Get your body out of the way and move the and then trap the gun." Yes. <clears throat> just want to just want to say to everybody, move your hands first as you're doing that. Yeah. Because your your body will never move, but your hands will. So when you do that, hands and body because hands simultaneous. Will. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and but but if you stepped and then moved your hands, the guy will track with you if he means to shoot you. And but B is the second answer. You want to drive in. You want to control that weapon and knock this fucker off balance. That's right. Control and drive towards their chest. Or what also works is straight up. Like just getting that gun offline and away from you is the ultimate goal. Uh, but maintaining control of the weapon is also your primary primary goal as well. And once you've got it, don't let it go. The bear is still heading your way. Luckily, the bear is not charging you yet. Mm-hmm. So do you A, get loud and get big, right? Or B, stay quiet and see what the bear does next. I would probably, if I did surmise that the bear was coming towards me but hasn't started charging, that I would want to get loud and get big. That's what I have done some reading yeah. with black bears, that that's what you want to do. Whereas I think with grizzlies, it's like, all right, you know, lay down on the ground, tuck your tail between your legs and just pray really, really, really hard. Uh, but yeah, with a black bear, <laughs> I would want to kind of get big and all that. And again, in this scenario, I've got a compound fracture on my arm. And if I take off running, that's probably going to increase the blood flow to that area of the body. So I don't necessarily want to do that. But I think it would be a good time to get loud and get big. Yeah, I think you're doing a good job remembering the fact that you're injured. Your performance isn't going to be that of what it was if you were running before the plane crash. Sure. Right? Um, you got the environment working against you. You know, it's take off running. You know, with all the reading I've done and actually talking and interviewing lots of people, there is this, uh, like, you know, the bear encounter experience. It has been vastly different for a lot of different people. But the baseline that you hear all the time with black bears is to get loud, get big because they are the least aggressive mm-hmm. and you can actually scare them off. Like, like they're like a big rat basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you are right. Get loud, get big. Um, and brown bear, like you said, are far more aggressive. So they say, um, but some of the techniques for both have worked with both. Mm. And, and it's important to say that it's really the situation, the environment and, in, in, in whether you are injured or not, and what's around you determines really what you're going to do. Instead of going for a straight beeline, I might try to, you know, take a couple of zigs and zags, just see what else I can see. Maybe, you know, maybe as I'm approaching the vehicle, I don't know how far it's away, but if it's, if it's, you know, if it's a good distance away, I probably don't want to go for a straight beeline. I might try to cut and bob and weave just so I can get better angle on what I'm running into and seeing, yeah. you know, as soon as I start to clear the building, you know, now I'm exposing myself to whoever could possibly be you know, outside the building seeing me. So, you know, if I can find a more discreet approach then I will. So if not, I'll zigzag. And I guess last case, if I'm being chased, I'll run straight for it. Yeah, there you go. It's uh, you're right. It, you want to zigzag. You want to uh, look for cover and concealment. I think people that get into yeah. really scary situations and fear takes over panic yeah, kicks yeah. in, mm-hmm. they tend to think, Oh, I just got to run to the finish line. When the reality yeah, yeah. is, you know, between you and the finish line could be a lot of stuff you could resource exactly. to protect yourself, hide yourself. And you should look for those items Absolutely. and zigzag with, you know, you and I both know the zigzag was 
it's always been there, right? If you're running yeah. from building to building in oh, yeah. Iraq, you know, <laughs> you're just, for sure. you know, now I know you and I both know plenty of snipers where you can zigzag all day and he's still going to put that bullet in your back. For sure. Uh, but when you're talking about a novice dude with an AK-47, then, uh, for sure. you know, it's zigzag can help because it's forcing the shooter to change windage, elevation, all at the same time. And so, uh, you want them to be inaccurate and you want to make it hard on them. You want to be a hard, hard target. Okay. Damn straight. Good job, buddy. Hard target. Good job. Um, so the shark is getting closer. So do you a Donkey Kong style hammer fist the shark in the fin? <laughs> or B, just do a hard or as hard as you can throw a punch in the water to its nose? This is turning into a pretty bad day. Um, <laughs> yeah, it started out okay. I mean, the, uh, definitely the nose. Yeah, they say that nose is super sensitive, right? It's like the housing for radar, and it's not really a nose. It's like just the front, that front yeah. area. Just like humans, you know, anytime you mess with anybody's ability to breathe, it tends to make them to not want to be an aggressor any longer, right? So if you start to choke someone out, they panic and just don't want to be part of the situation any longer. With a shark, they have gills. They're a fish. And so if you can, if it gets getting close enough or it's even got a hold of you, Getting your hands inside those gills and trying to rip them mm. um, certainly can uh, work to your advantage as well. You're home alone, okay? And uh, you're in bed, and suddenly everything starts to shake violently, all right? And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, what California is due. It's actually overdue for a huge earthquake. So, anyway, you feel everything start to shake, okay? Do you, A, get up and rush out of the home... Or B, stay in the house. Now, there's a lot of protocols that come with earthquakes that you may or may not know about. But uh, you're going to uh, A, get up and run outside. Or are you B, going to stay inside? Depends how violent the shake is. Um, <laughs> I would say that I, the first initial shake, I'd probably stay put. Um, so, you know, I, it, you know, I'd stay put, assess it, and then, then go from there. There you go. Look at you. So, yes, you want to stay in the house. Um, there's a lot of common misconceptions when dealing with earthquakes and the protocol that come with it. But rushing outside, especially at night, you know, you don't know what you're running into. And the structure you're inside of is going to protect you more than probably uh, whatever's falling outside. Um, so, yeah, you don't want to put yourself at risk, especially at night. Um, so good job. Yes, B, stay in the house. All right, next. Do you, A, lay down next to a sturdy piece of furniture, uh, like a big couch or a table, or B, go stand in a door frame? It's a tough one. A tough I, would one. Say, um, I would say A, because if any, anything was to fall, then that sturdy bit of furniture would hopefully protect you yeah. from any... Good job. Yes, A. Another misconception, because you'll hear about it here in the States, is go stand in a door frame. But unfortunately, door, door frames are not like reinforced. They're just a door frame. And uh, there's nothing that's really going to protect you. But a couch laying like, you know, horizontally up against it uh, will hopefully break the fall of other debris because the number one killer in an earthquake is falling debris. Uh, so you want to basically take cover 
uh, if you will. While a quick escape is important, you know, you're not going to outrun a dog. And you don't know if you're inside of a fence line. You don't know what, what kind of what's going to come your way. So you kind of have to have the mentality of as soon as the lid opens, I'm going into fight mode. Um, and one of the things that can help is certainly uh, that can of compressed air. Because when you turn it upside down, uh, it lets out a freezing mist. Um, and one of the tricks we used to use if we were going into an occupied target, whether it had you know people asleep or a dog, and you knew there was a dog, you could crack that door open where that dog's nose is right there, turn that can of air upside down, and then freeze their nose. And uh, we did it one night, froze the nose, and then when you come back again, that dog is like, nope, don't want my nose frozen again. They don't even mess with you. Now, if it's a trained Mike Ritland dog, then that might not work. But with your average uh, guard dog freezing their nose uh, goes a long ways. And you're not having to kill the dog or drug the dog or do something stupid yeah. to the dog because we all love dogs. Older model cars, you used to be able to kick out like the, the entire brake light. And then you could stick your arm out and actually wave, right? Mm. And people could see an arm hanging out. Now, these days, with these newer cars, it's pretty much closed up. The frame is right there, but you can pull the wiring harness, you know, and totally kill the brake light so that hopefully um, a cop sees that or someone sees that and reports it. Um, so, yeah, you got to get creative in the trunk for sure. You know, I've been in several hotels that have actually caught on fire. I should say several, too. And um, so, you know, having to get out through the fire escapes and stuff like that is something that I've I've done and then you know just having an understanding you know like um if you are in, in in a hotel and it does catch fire it's pretty chaotic and pretty confusing and you know if, if the power's out or if the emergency lights are barely visible through the smoke and whatnot knowing the layout of the of the floor plan so that you can try to escape safely will go a long ways when you know doing your homework in other words will go a long ways to ensuring your survival yeah yeah, I gotcha. I like it. Um, those are all great points that uh, I was going to make anyway, but you made it easy for me. So good job there. <laughs> the answer Boiled is again. B. Yes. You know, if uh, request a hotel map and get the layout and uh, make sure that, you know, the one thing I throw in there, and this really, I mean, it applies to males, but I'd say mostly females is you know, understanding where those stairwells are in the elevator and making sure you're not too close to either one. Like I like to tell people, Hey, pick, if you can pick a room, that's in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. It's equal distance to the elevator or to the stairwell, then great. But one that's right by the stairwells, you know, a lot of these guys will pull a chick in there by her, you know, her ponytail and close the door and nobody will ever know. Um, but you sure, made all the other great points, man. Great points. Obviously, experienced traveler. Uh, you're skiing down the mountain when, yes, an avalanche occurs. And a wall of snow is gaining from behind. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So do you, A, compress yourself and become more aerodynamic uh, so that you get down the slope faster, right? You know, you're bent over going into full-on Olympic mode. Or B move to the flanks of the slope while you can yeah i'm gonna try to get to the flanks That's i'm gonna right. try to get to the flanks i'm gonna try to get the cover whether it be rock or timber because no matter how fast that snow's going i know working in dense timber i can dissipate it or the side can i'm yeah. just gonna try to get out of that ballistic snow cannon coming at me yeah that's right yep you nailed it it's uh getting to the flanks basically moving perpendicular you're not going to outrun or outski right. an avalanche. <laughs> yeah. As you swim with the rush, 
it starts to become overwhelming. All right. It's just getting worse for you. Sorry. Uh, do you a keep your arms at your side? You know, that probably sounds stupid or B put your hands out in front of your face. Man, I'm going to put them out in front of my face to protect my face, my eyes, my nose, my senses, and uh, try to let the, you know, try to make that helmet out of my hands and, and protect the sensories I'm going to need, you know, out of That's those. Right. Yeah. yeah, you're protecting your head, but even more importantly, you've got your hands already there to create an air pocket so that you can breathe when everything comes to a stop. Right here. Right? Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So you're creating, a, you're basically thinking ahead and going, okay, I got to create a cavity for myself. Yeah. Um, Nice. You know, this is something that, I mean, you really got to be thinking, right? Uh, but um, so you're moving. Uh, breathing, obviously, is going to become all of a sudden the most important thing in your life. And by placing your hands in front of your face, uh, as you get buried, you can create that air pocket and uh, hopefully breathe for at least a little while in order to figure out next which way is up. Yeah, the precipitation comes to a halt, right? So all of that snow stops, and now you're just buried in the snow. Um, so yeah. do you, A, dig in the direction your head is facing, or use your senses to determine which way is up? I'm going to try to use my senses to determine which yeah. way is up, because my head could be completely inverted. So I'm going to look for things like, you know, available light for the from the surface, being maybe a little lighter or something ambient. Yeah some gravity if i've created that air pocket and i'm having things drop on me so i'm going to know basically gravity is going to maybe tell me which way is up so to speak in that realm and just do the best i can with what i can see and feel yeah um, you're dead I'm on not man trust where i'm at yeah that's right it's uh you know vertigo you've been tumbling you're going to have a lot of sensory issues but you're going to use them after you look listen and feel take a moment stay calm and figure out which way is up You'll be able to feel blood flow. If it's in your head, then you know you're upside down. Another yeah. way um, is to observe which way the snot is running out of your face, right? <laughs> That's a good so, one. Like or that. the yeah. tears in your eyes. If they're running up your forehead, well, yeah. then something is wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, are, the, the mystery spot isn't adding up, man. Pay yeah. attention. That's if, a good one. Man, if like all it. the snot is flowing down towards your left ear, then you might be sideways. <laughs> I don't know, but... These are the things that you have to really start paying attention to, and they're usually just right there in your face, common sense stuff, but you go into a panic, and you know we know how contagious panic can be, yes. and it can just destroy you, and you end up making bad decisions followed by bad actions. If you put the U.S. Embassy in the equation, I'm going to say move to the embassy. The embassy yeah. is your safe haven. That is where you can. That is where you can finally take a breath and relax, and actually once you get inside safe haven i mean you you know you've got everything at your disposal at that point you know as an american citizen what i think a lot of people don't realize they don't value is when they travel um not knowing where your embassies are not knowing how to get to even a consulate not knowing where the consulates are not knowing how to get there uh you know in dire straits so even though i would like to fly australia is a big ass continent and that little Cessna <laughs> isn't going to get me very far you know so i'm going to just Keep, I'm going to keep the goodwill rolling with this Honda. Keep that goodwill rolling and get right yeah. to the embassy as quick as I can. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. 
to this day, I keep a pair of shoes right next to my bed because your feet become the most important tool you will ever have in a crisis, whether it's broken glass, debris. And the last thing you want to do is be barefoot. And so no matter where I am in the world, I always have a pair of shoes next to my bed now. And it's just a habit that's been there since being overseas, you know, and getting caught off guard. <laughs> so prime, primary mode of transport, isn't it? Your feet. Yeah, so. That's right. Um, and warmies, yes. All of us special operators know the importance of warmies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. If those are the two options, I, uh, God, see, I'm going to die, dude. I'm, I'm going to wrestle the gun away. I'm not getting the fucking gun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be very Texas of you for sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, when you're outgunned, outnumbered, or taking severe blows to the head, sometimes you have to temporarily surrender to take control of the situation I, so you I can think escape. That, I think that I would get I would get in the car. I mean, I'm putting there myself in that perspective. I would get in the car because, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's that's – you know, otherwise I'm getting shot. But yeah, that, that's the, you, you talk tough, but I'd get in the car. Yeah. I mean, it's can you take control of a person with a gun even though you don't have anything? Yes. And I think a lot of people are underestimate their capabilities and they see a person with a gun and immediately go, he's got the advantage or she's got the advantage. Mm -hmm. I can't do anything. I might as well just sit here. I might as well do nothing. Um, I agree. You could fight. Yeah, but you take a chance of you know taking a round in the gut or or in the head or or in the chest and um, but or if you know what you're doing, you really think it through. You can take advantage of these guys, give in temporarily, and uh, so that you can set yourself up for a clean escape later. So, um, but once again, if you're outgunned, which you are, outnumbered or taking severe blows to the head, uh, that temporary surrender is always a good option. Um, and the reason I say that, especially severe blows to the head, the last thing you want to do is get knocked out and then wake up chained mm -hmm. to a wall in a place you have no idea where you're at. You look back, and those dead bodies are now reanimated and appear to be zombies coming towards you. So do you, A, run towards the back of the cabin where your car is parked, which is about 60 feet, or B, get inside the cabin, which is about 30 feet away? Run to my car. Get in the car, start it, if the keys are in there. You just, yep, you just kind of answered your own wrong answer. Nope, the keys aren't in there. So no, I'm going, I'm going <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to... Where I'm, are the keys? I'm, you know They're what I'm probably... going to do? I'm going to re reanimate my cats in black and kick the shit out of those zombies. <laughs> there you go, going to... Yeah, you know black. what? I'm just, I'm I'm just going to kick the shit out of them. Going to, yes, I agree. That would be a good I'm going to find a spade and like take one's head off. Take their head spade. off. Spade. That's find what they an say. axe, and then I'll just, you know, I'll just, I'll just kill him, just kill him. <laughs> now I'll cook yeah. him and eat him, like Catherine. Yes. There you go. I like it. Um, zombie for dinner, anyone? Uh, so yes, you kind of answered the question with the wrong answer, but yes, you got to go to the cabin because you need your keys. Right. Okay. So you, uh, all right. So now you go to the cabin, which was only right. three feet away. You close the door just in time, um, and. Do you A, search the house for weapons, or B, barricade the door? <laughs> um, realistically, in if I were actually in this scenario, I would attempt to first barricade the door. Yes. And, and number two, I'd start searching for weapons. There you go. Yeah, you got to keep them out long enough so that you can you know, yeah. get prepared. And like the reason we bring this up with common sense. I like this. Yes, exactly. And, and also it, the goal is, is it applies to 
everything, right? You got a bad guy chasing you, not necessarily zombies. Barricading the door gives you time. Time gives you options. Options increase survivability, which is always the goal. Um, we want to survive these crazy events that we could face. Uh, so now you block the door and you do it right. Okay. There's a right and a wrong way to block in a door. People think stacking stuff up against the door doesn't really work because if they kick the door hard enough, the stuff falls and now they can get in. So what you want to do is line everything up more linear. You want to put a chair in front of the door and then put another chair in front of the chair and then another chair in front of the chair and then a table in front of the chair. And anyway, you're creating this long line of stuff. Line. From the door to the opposite wall, the wall then, the opposite wall then becomes, becomes the, the doorstop. Yeah. Right. The load-bearing object. Look at you with all that smart talk. Why be a sitting duck in a parking structure, you know, and, and, and ultimately, like, park and come to a stop? You know, when you have momentum on your side, hopefully it can certainly help you. Certainly helps you with a J-turn, right? So 30 miles an hour, you pull that e-brake. And you're going to get those back tires floating. Your ass is going to swing around. Your nose is going to be pointing 180 degrees. And then you're letting off that e-brake and then you're fucking flooring it. And you're out of there. So uh, I'm sure you're good at those. You, you perform any of those anytime? I know you may do uh, loops around and, you know, burn some tires out in a circular fashion from time to time, right? Every now and then. Every now and then. Like <laughs> the, the celebratory burnouts. Uh, yeah. It, no, no better feeling because you know you're on top of the world at that point. But hang on, let's get yeah. back to to, yeah, to yeah, talking zombies. Okay. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Just like you do, I get lots of questions about buds, right? Basic underwater demolition seal training. What's the hardest part? What's this? What's that? So, for our listeners, selection for you guys. What are like the highlight? You know, we have Hell Week and we have Pool Comp, and then we go out to San Clemente Island where people can't hear you scream, and that's where you uh, get even further, uh, you know, torture of different sorts. But um, what are the highlights of selection that, you know, most people like fear or that anticipation of death is worse than death itself type moment? What was it for you or what is the more popular one, popular parts of selection? It's broke down into stages. So the first four weeks of selection is in the Brecon Beacons. Um, and it's called the hill phase where you carry extreme weight on your back over extreme distance and you're timed along the way. And you have to meet certain criteria, certain time uh, restrictions. And in the first four weeks, 70% of the course um, is gone. In those wow. first four weeks, because you're up, you know, 4, 4.30 in the morning, you're sat on your Bergen in the Brecon Beacons, it's pissing it down. You've got the big four tonne of lights that are shined upon you. The chief instructor comes out. All you can see is his shadow. And he's telling you, because you're just a number, he's telling you what number to get onto what wagon. Um, and he gives you the opportunity every morning to VW because um, you don't know what March is ahead of you. You don't know how long you're going to be out on the ground for. And the first four weeks is just gets rid of the dead wood because a lot mm. of people, they go on selection just for the kudos. You know, they get on selection and they come back, go back to their unit and oh, I've been on selection. And it sort of does boost their career a little bit. But the first four weeks is just all, you know, oh, it's just humping and, 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 you know, getting across the Brecon Beacons, which is, you know, disgusting. You get four seasons in one. It's 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 horrendous the first four weeks. But when you get past the first four weeks, that's when the course starts. Mm. So you've lost seventy percent of the course. Two hundred and two people started my course. I think thirty four of us um, got to the next stage, which which is a jungle phase. So you do jungle training, and it's six weeks long. So you do two weeks of sort of beat up jungle training. It's it's you know horrendous. 
and then you go and fly out to Brunei for, for four weeks and you conduct um, live exercise, live rounds, break contact drills, um, evacuation drills, um, camp attacks, you name it, all live ammunition. And that's more to see how you operate under extreme sort of pressure and fatigue with live ammunition, mm. how safe you are. Because we both know the moment you get one tick for one safety element, you're off the course. Now, when you're in the jungle for four whole weeks and you're being assessed with live ammunition, break contact drills any time of the day because all you're doing is patrolling. And then at the end of that phase, you do 10, 10 days of a proper final X. Um, again, you lose another half of the course, just mainly due to uh, self-induced pressure where they've made a mistake. And it might not be a safety mistake, but they've made a mistake. And, you know, the, the DS don't tell you anything. So you plant that seed of doubt yourself and you go, right, you know, I'm not going to pass this phase. So there's no point in carrying on. And a lot of people VW in the trees, in, in the jungle. But um, again, you make one safety mistake, you're off. So that's the second phase. So that's all about soldiering. And then you've got the escape and evasion, which is the third phase, mm. um, which again is, you know, in the highlands of Scotland, no one can hear you scream. No one can hear you talk. You're on the yeah. run for a whole week. Um, before you get captured, you know, you get to a final RV, double agent, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go through a three-day uh, interrogation process. Um, and then once you, if you pass that, then that's the bulk of selection done. That takes about four months. And then you go on to continuation training, which again is another two months um, before you actually get badged. And that's all your CQB. That's your, your, your shotgun drills, you know, taking off doors, abseiling into buildings. You're in the killing house 24-7. Again, one safety mistake on that, you're gone as well. Mm -hmm. So um, 202 people started my course and on badging day, eight of us passed. So um, it's very much, it's full on for six months. There's no rest period. There's no, you know, that stress of just staying in that zone, as you will know, for, for, for six months is is um is tiring but you get to the four month period and if you pass the escape and evasion you can take a breath you can go right listen all i need to do now is really you know because it's a new learning phase you need to stay on the learning curve really take on board what's what's been taught every single day and do not make any safety errors yeah no doubt about it safety and performance safety is always primary and mm -hmm. uh just for uh, language barrier a bergen is a rucksack, right? What well, we call a rucksack right. here. Um, mm -hmm. Pissing is when it's raining. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then v VW is voluntary withdrawal. Uh, what else yeah. did you say that we need to <laughs> do you that? You know what? The voluntary withdrawal is you know, translation. Like when you guys ring the bell. You know when you ring the bell? Yeah, ding, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, and ding, they ding, put their helmets yeah. down. It's, it's, That's it's right. Like, it's like... Yeah, we call it, uh, what, what they used to, I think it's changed name. I mean, it's like, Never ring the bell. It's quitting, but the official term is drop upon drop on request. D O R. You D O R. Drop on request. You guys call it V W, which is voluntary VW. withdrawal. You're at SEAL Team Ten. Kind of tell us about some of those experiences. It was good. I had um, I was in the teams like it was only six years. It was a short stint, and yeah. um, you know it is what it is. I had some medical complications that pushed me out of the military, but uh, the stuff that I did in the team kind of like what you were saying to where you were doing, you finished up your time doing those one man missions and you're like, dude, I'm just out here. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we were doing was tracking war criminals and um, terrorist cells in Eastern Europe. And we were doing a lot of stuff that was more on the surveillance side. 
and uh, building intel packages. So scout reconnaissance, um, sniper operations, and and whatnot. It was it was cool. It was different than what I thought I was going to be doing. But you don't pick you don't pick what your job's going to be. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But it was it was it was pretty cool. It was, it was a good experience. Yeah, that's so that you're referring. That's all the Piffwick stuff, right? Yeah, they just didn't really have a name for it at the time. It was just kind of um, now there's like actual like legit programs and stuff for it. But, yeah, you know, it's uh, back when when I was doing this, this was in the early 2000s. So you didn't have like smartphones and stuff yet. So I remember we were taking like video cameras and like jerry rigging wires into like through the through the straps of backpacks and doing like those little like. Um, Oh, yeah. button pin video, uh, <laughs> camera lenses. And we're like walking into to stores and stuff where they were laundering money or they were, you know, moving weapons and shit like that. And we're trying to get like video camera of like of the guys, you know, and, and putting um, tracking devices on cars and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it was really, when you look back on it now, it was like very antiquated technology. Like it's so much, easier now but uh you know we just had to figure out ways to make it work so there's a lot of creativity involved in in trying to take the stuff that you had and make it into something that you could actually hide and one of the big one of the big issues was trying to figure out how to power it like like the batteries are much smaller now back then the, the battery packs you know were huge and you had yeah. to figure out how do you hide this stuff and power it for you know, 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever. Some of the scout reconnaissance stuff where we're going to go in on a three-day operation to, to watch a target. And in, in your bag, you had your camera, like a, like a Canon camera. Then you had like the yeah. doubler lens, then like that big 400 millimeter lens. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to watch a target for three days. How many batteries does it take to power this camera for three days? Then you had your tough book, like laptop. And it's like, yeah. how many batteries does it take to power a laptop for three days? Then you add your personal communications and then all the, the radio uh, batteries. Then you had the big radio and the satellite that send back the imagery <laughs> and how many batteries for three days. Dude, I remember you just be like, okay, I'm not going to eat. I'll bring some water. I'll bring a couple granola bars. Like I'm just going to fast essentially for three days because my bag <laughs> is so damn heavy with, with uh, batteries that I can't bring anything else. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then now it's just like, do cell phones and you just bring your rifle and you just put the little tiny cell phone camera behind this scope. And it's like, there you go. There's your camera. These mountain lions, they're no joke. I mean, I've heard that that's probably it's, they're scarier than a bear because you don't ever see it happen. Is that right? And what, how, what's the best way to deal with a big cat like that? You can avoid a cat, a cat attack by doing so many preventative things like you are so, you know, you articulate so well in your books and your training preparedness is everything. And you find yourself not in a lot of problems. If you just have situational awareness, you prepare your kit, you're aware of any, everything around you and you don't stumble into something that you can't get out of. And that's largely what we have. We have a, a, somebody that's a little oblivious to the trail. They don't spend a lot of outdoor time. Um, they're not making the noise they should. They're not watching their perimeter. Cats are sneaky anyway. And, yeah. you know, they're going to do what a cat does. They're going to crouch down like a house cat. They're going to sit behind brush. They're going to wait for deer to ambush, you know, even for a big cat to take down prey like a deer or anything else. 
they still have to get close. You know, it's not an easy kill, even for these more sedate, you know, quote unquote, plains game animals. Um, mountain lions miss a lot of prey that they go after because the angle isn't right. Those animals have some awareness. They have some speed. They're dodgy. So same thing with humans. If you set yourself up and don't go into areas that are too thickly brushed, you're not making enough noise. You're not looking around at the sign. Stand tall. Make noise. Don't crouch down. And I also think, too, you know, you mentioned the word basic, basic, basic a lot. And I think people forget that really our job with any skill out there is uh, you master the basics, then you will become advanced. It's not about showing up and learning some Jedi stuff. There are There is no Jedi stuff. It doesn't no. exist. It's so mastering the basics is what makes you a Jedi, right? I love that. That is perfect. That is That is exactly the key. Like I tell, like I told people this for years, if you, you know, the secret to winning is simple, master the fundamentals and then execute them faster than the bad guy. Yeah. That's it. That's all it takes. We will be right back after the break. So Harry Humphreys comes in and he says, right, Matt, well, you're a, you're a captain, right? So you play captain, you're a captain and we're doing all the training. We're doing overbounding with a bunch of guys at Jet Reeves and, you know, a, a bunch of other team guys, because he, he brings in a lot of team guys and yeah, a couple yeah. of army rangers. And um, and so we're doing all this training. And then there's a scene where, and again, you don't know what the movie's going to be like. Like, this could have been like this massive battle scene. And he comes up and um, and he goes, uh, okay, Matt, pick, pick the team to go up in the birds, right? And I'm like, oh, man. Like, I've got to go and tell a bunch of team guys, like, who goes up in the birds? Like, uh, <laughs> feeling a little bit like, you know, because they could go, who the hell are you? But there was a couple of SWAT teams that had come up from, I don't know where they came, come up for, that were supporting us in the team. So it was the core, like, SEAL team guys, Harry's boys, and then there was, this, you know, the other guys. Mm-hmm. And I went over to them and I said, hey, guys, listen, sort it out between yourself. I want eight guys on that bird. I want eight guys on that bird. Right. And then they just started arguing with each other. Right? It was the funny thing. I'm like, hey, you guys are meant to be decision makers. Like, just get on the bus. <laughs> and then Harry Humphrey, and I really wanted to go on, right? Because all the way through Black Hawk Down, I'd never been on a Black Hawk. So I go over to Harry, walks up to me and he goes, oh, get your boys and get on the bird. So I go on, and, and, and again, you'll appreciate this, like, for those that haven't been in the situation. We get on the Blackhawks, strap ourselves in, you know, we're back to back. And I've got Jeff Reeves, you know, the, the sailor behind me. And we take off and it's like two Blackhawks flying around. And we got, um, originally we've got uh, two Apaches with us as well. Mm-hmm. But one of them had an issue, so that stayed down. The other one was right opposite me. And I, I'm looking with the doors open on the Blackhawk flying around like this. And I'm looking over, I'm like, this is possibly the coolest shit ever in the world. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't, and, and Jeff, like, hits me like this, right? And it's super loud, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, just so you know, this shit never gets old. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, great. You know, totally geeking out, like, going around, you know. And then, uh, you yeah. know, obviously, I'm with Optimus Prime and all that crap. It was, it was really amazing. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, yeah, you're in Transformers for crying out loud. And yeah, we've had Jeff, Jeff Reeves on the show and he's a, 
I don't know if you stay in touch with him, but he lives right here. He lives like literally two minutes away from me here in the Dallas area. So you guys, oh, really? are, yeah, yeah, you yeah, guys no, are pretty no, close. Here. Yeah. 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 He's here. I haven't seen him since I've been, been here because I've been so busy, but I was like, dude, and, you know, it's like, like, dude, you're here. I'm like, yeah, I'm here. You're here. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So he's a, but he was right next to me. And, uh, um, when we did that. So we had, we had a lot of good memories, me and Jeff. He's a good dude. That's pretty cool. Is the reason why I put you number one in Hunter Deli skills, combat edition, but also the reason why I put you up front. And, uh, because when you travel the country and you hang out with all of these different badasses, like I did to put this book together, um, you realize very quickly that almost everyone is speaking the Tony Blower philosophy. So the idea here is Trojan horses. I don't want my opponent to see the warrior inside the horse. I just want them to go. There's nobody here protecting this. And, and now they're overconfident. So we're seducing the psychology of the person. I could stand here and go, man, I don't want to fight. Or yeah. I could go, Hey man, I don't want to fight. And, and as we discussed before, palm strike versus versus fist right you know like i'm i'm right there but the connection uh has to be made that trained or untrained people when a stimulus is introduced too quickly could be emotional and it could be it could be physical the body wants to do this and so we shape that in into this whole nonviolent posture uh, principle with the purpose used one of the biggest buzzwords these days is de-escalation. I mean, that's the moral ethical legal thing to do. And the Trojan horse nonviolent posture supports that. So if the defuse does work, it works. And then if you're suddenly you're you're in that moment where you're talking to a person, you realize this verbal, these verbal tactics are not working, we're gonna go. You're in the you're in the optimal position to 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 start. Yeah. Yeah. It sets you up for success. And uh and your most of your adversaries will be unwitting to it, which is which is beautiful. Right. Um, Except for now, because we're releasing the whole strategy. <laughs> and now, yeah. now we're fucked. And the ten thousand people you train per year, man. Right. Yeah. Make them sign non-disclosures. So then we talked about most dangerous assignment, of course, Fallujah. Right. I mean, tell us about your experience there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that whole two thousand and four period, um, you know, was pretty dangerous. Um, I mean, actually, before that, I mean, the, the very close run thing would be um, Sada City also in 2004, because I remember being on a U.S. Army patrol and we went to a police station and it was, you know, end up getting surrounded. And then there were soldiers put on the roof and then and then we had to exit the, the police station. And, um, you know, I saw there were bullets, you know, kicking up the dust in front of my feet. And wow. then and then we had this wild drive back because. Um, I guess the Mahdi army, the you know, Shia militia had put up barricade, burning barricades in the roads. We were like doing U-turns. I was in a Humvee and there was RPGs going across. So that was pretty dangerous. Um, but Fallujah in 2004, I mean, we were, you know, it was the biggest, it was built and I think it was the sort of the biggest US military battle since Vietnam. The entire city was kind of empty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the night before there was these just gunships just like blasting the place, you know, 
I mean, we were, as journalists, I mean, it's kind of interesting. We've just been talking about journalism, how trusted we were. And we were in on all the planning. Now, obviously, our lives were at stake as well. So it wasn't in our interest to start, you know, kind of leaking stuff. Um, but I remember the night before we went in and, uh, you know, I was in this briefing room in Camp Fallujah and I remember thinking, God damn, I wish I had my camera with me because I just looked at the guys over them, you know, pointing at the map and, you know, just how it looked like a scene from a, a, a movie. Yeah. And the three guys I was looking at uh, were Captain Sean Sims, who was the company commander of the company that I ended up transfer. I went from one company to the other. Uh, so Captain Sean Sims, um, and there was his XO was uh, Lieutenant Edward Iwan, I think, I-W-A-N. Mm-hmm. And then the command sergeant major of the battalion was a guy called Steve Falkenberg. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at those guys and like, they just like, like from central casting, you know, they look, they just looked the part, you know, it was, it was super serious. Like this was, this was no kind of peacekeeping operation. This was no kind of walk in the park or training exercise. I just, I'd never uh, experienced something that just kind of felt so real. And those three guys were all killed, you know, in the next few days. Wow. And it was just like, holy shit, I can't believe that I'm, I'm, I'm part of this. And, and so that whole period, I mean, there were buildings rigged with IDs. There were, you know, kind of insurgents amped up, like, you know, Bellevue went into a house with guys jumping out of wardrobes and guys you'd shoot that would just keep going. And just those whole few days, uh, I just remember thinking like, you know, I, I don't know, this just could be, it just could be lights out at, at, at any moment here. And right. so I feel that that was the most, uh, you know, that was the most kind of dangerous assignment I had. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, Fallujah and uh, that early 2000s, I did the initial push into Iraq and that was like true combat. I tell people, you know, not a lot of SEAL teams or special operations guys get to witness or be a part of like moving in and rolling in through a city <laughs> you know it's yeah. not it's not typical of special operations you know you're pushing through you're sleeping in your vehicles you're sleeping under them it's before any bases were established yeah, there was no forward operating bases there was nothing it's just yeah. you your guys uh we had humvees with plastic doors you know zero yeah. armor armor and we filled them up with ammo MREs, water, and fuel. There was barely any room to sit and uh, got on Highway 1 in Kuwait and drove north, like on the highway. And that's, uh, you know, that was all Marine run all the way into, uh, all the way up to Baghdad. Um, but it's, my point being is it's an, it's, it, it's an unfortunate but amazing experience, right? I mean, yeah. combat is unfortunate, but... When you're a SEAL or any soldier, the pinnacle of your career is war. <laughs> you yeah. know, you don't go in to train for 20 years. You go in so that you can pull the trigger and hopefully do something for the greater good. And uh, it's amazing when I talk to journalists who've been there uh, from y'all's point of view, especially yours. The first thing you did, well, you, show, you highlighted men. You highlighted who they are and that now they're dead. And I think that's great. And I thank you for sharing that because their families want their names to continue on forever as well. 
Yeah. Um, so thanks for that. Sure. Um, no, I mean, it was just, I remember, you know, we were mostly in Bradley's and, you know, sometimes we'd be there for hours, kind of yeah. in the dark, like, you know, pissing in water bottles and stuff. And then right. just all the, the conversations. You know, the co- <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> which were just great, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, they were just so, fu- they were just so funny. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's really tired and, you know, people are kind of a little bit scared and, uh, they're sort of, you know, hyped up as adrenaline and, um, you know, let's face it, everybody knows that they might die, you know, that day. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, you know, which in a way is kind of like life affirming. Um, but, uh, and then the, you know, then the kind of the rear door would kind of like creak and, and then all of a sudden the light and then you'd like spill out. Um, and it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was an incredible experience. I tell you, I have the utmost respect for our military, uh, all branches and all the decisions that they have to make out in the field to save their own lives, their, their platoon, their comrades and everybody that's with them. And also the the decisions to protect our freedoms. Uh, it's it's huge, man. And I, I'm lucky. I get a roll cage and a helmet, and I get to go 200 miles an hour, and it doesn't hold a candle to what our military do. So thank you. No, thank thank you, man. Thanks for your goodwill and and uh, supporting the troops the way you do. I know it's all appreciated. I was one of those guys that kind of brushed it off. Like, you know, yeah, all right. Support us. Great. Support us. Don't. Cause the job was really, you know, at the forefront and I had front sight focus at the time, but now that I've been out guys like you, um, making it happen, um, for, for all the veterans, it, it I think it, it makes a world of difference. So, uh, keep up the good deeds. And we, uh, we sure appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your racing knowledge, your, uh, your fiery, crazy situations. And, uh, of course, going through this scenario with us, we do appreciate it. And thank you. No, no, it's my pleasure. And no, it was a blast, you know, to jump in with you and to go through this process. That was great. And again, uh, there's so much to, to learn about NASCAR. And this helps people see it from a different direction. So I'm happy to to be a brand ambassador for not just Monster Energy, but for NASCAR. Yeah, you are. You're a great. You're a, a great symbol of the community. And like I always say, folks, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And until next time, be safe out there. And for those of you listening, hey, uh, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And be safe out there. Until next time. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.